Good evening. How is everyone? Well, we continue in Esther, the book of Esther. You can turn with me to Esther chapter 4. And in Esther chapter 4 through chapter 5, verse 8, although we're only going to be in chapter 4 this evening, we now see after this decree, this edict has gone out that Haman is drafted in the name of King Xerxes, condemning all of the Jews to death. It's a genocidal ambition that he has to, uh, to completely destroy all the Jews within the empire, that is within the kingdom of Persia. And this edict has gone out. We saw that at the end of last week's study. And Mordecai, well, you know, he's been a very worldly guy. He's been, you know, trying in politics to become more powerful within the kingdom, and he works at the king's gate, an official within the Persian kingdom, uh, suddenly now has a number of days that he's going to live, and then all the Jews will be put to death by this command that has been issued. So now what Mordecai is going to do is attempt to persuade Esther to appeal to King Xerxes. Esther is, of course, the queen. Xerxes is the king. So she is going to be persuaded by Mordecai to appeal to Xerxes, her husband, the king, on behalf of the Jews. And so that's what happens in the next section here. But this evening we're going to look at chapter 4. And in chapter 4, first, Mordecai is going to inform Esther of what happened. Because she doesn't even know what's going on. She's in the kingdom. This edict has gone out throughout the 127 provinces from India to northern Africa. And yet Esther's not aware of it, though Mordecai is. So with that, let's open in a word of prayer and we'll get started. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And this evening, as we study, as we realize that sometimes you call us to stand for the things we believe in, for our faith in you, to even put our lives on the line, if necessary, for the calling that you have upon our lives. May we see the bravery that comes from trusting you and seeking you, putting our hope and our faith in you. And Lord, may we realize that there will be times in our lives where we have to just simply trust you and let go of our own fears and anxieties and concerns because there's no better place, no safer place to be than in the center of your will. So help us to be faithful disciples and stewards of your grace to the world that needs to hear it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's start by looking at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. Well, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes. That's a sign of grief and put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth, which was a garment of repentance and mourning, no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. That is the king's gate. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So the response to this edict that would allow the other nations within the empire to destroy and kill the Jews, to plunder them, to put them to death, the response by the Jews is that of crying out to God. Have you ever noticed that sometimes when we find ourselves in a bit of a pickle, things are difficult, and we suddenly find ourselves maybe even persecuted for being a Christian or targeted by the enemy through others? 
that our reaction oftentimes is exactly that. We start crying out to God. Many times you get prayer requests from people who realize, oh, I need God. You know, a lot of times we can look at that and say, oh, yeah, now you need God. But you know what? There's never a bad time to seek God. Maybe you were kind of trusting in yourself and going it alone for a while, but now things have gotten out of hand. You have someone in your family that's sick, or you yourself are dealing with an illness. And at that point, or you've been fired from your job, you know, uh, something's happened, and now you, you, you almost have no choice but to cry out to God. It's a good thing. God will oftentimes bring us to our knees to get our attention if we've been neglecting trusting in him especially. Now, in this case here, Mordecai and the Jews were publicly mourning the king's edict. And they were openly repenting of their sins before God. They're crying out to God. They're wearing sackcloth and ashes. That is, they're admitting they've sinned, they've failed. Remember what I told you guys? We were talking about the book of Esther in the beginning of this study. And I mentioned how only like 50,000 Jews went there. I think it was like 55 years earlier. And then most of the Jews, the majority of the Jews, had stayed in Persia because it was comfortable. It was a lucrative place to be, good business prospects, opportunity. And very few had actually stepped up in faith to go and return to the city of Jerusalem and the land of Judah. Very few had. Well, it's interesting because now, these many decades later, the Jews are finding themselves being persecuted for being Jews. And sometimes God will turn up the heat on his people to get them to be where they're supposed to be, where they need to be. And I think this is the beginning of a change in Jewish culture in Persia, where they start to realize, you know, you can be part of this world system, but this world system will turn on you very quickly. And you need to put your faith in God, not in the system of the world. I mean, how quickly did we find that out over the last few years? The world, which so many of us have put our trust in and our hope in and our government turned on us very quickly as Christians. And, and, and really now, to say some of the things that we simply believe to be true, you're immediately persecuted and ostracized just for, just for speaking the truth of God's word. So it's a good thing when we realize that we're not part of this world. It's a good thing when we come to the conclusion that we really do need to remain separate. And I think that's the beginning of this. For after this, you have Ezra, who leads a a group of the captives or or exiles back, and then you have Nehemiah. And things really start to change after this event. Why is that? Because the Jews had a healthy dose of reality that they need to put their trust in God. And so this process brought them to their knees before God after the edict to destroy the Jews throughout Persia was issued. Notice he tore his clothes in separation from his worldly life. That's, That's what that means. He wore sackcloth and ashes in repentance and self-judgment before God, a very good sign outwardly of what needs to take place in our hearts and in our lives inwardly. He wailed loudly, bitterly as a public display of his inner grief, and he removed himself from his position in the king's court and forsook all of his worldly status because none of that mattered anymore. Persecution has a way of refining your character and bringing you back to God. How I wish it would be possible to learn these lessons another way. But many times it's not. We have to go through difficult times to be reminded how much we truly need God and how much we should be putting our faith in him and depending upon him. Now the Jews throughout the provinces of Persia turned to God for deliverance from the king's edict. They mourned with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many of them wore sackcloth and ashes in repentance 
before God. So as bad as things are externally, internally, the Jews as a people are in a good place. They're in a really good place because they're crying out to God. Now, when his people, whether we're talking about the Jews or the disciples of Christ today, the church, when his people come together and cry out to him, do you think God sits there, folds his hands or his arms and says, well, it's about time. I'm going to make them sweat it out a little while longer. You think that's the heart of God? No, he's bounding in mercy. He's full of compassion. He's just waiting on us. We talk about waiting on God. No, God is waiting on us. He wants to bless us abundantly, and we need only open our hearts to him. So this is a good thing. And it means that God is going to move on behalf of his people. And we know how the book proceeds and continues, but still, this is the turning point for them as a people, even for Mordecai as an individual. The point where they cry out to God is the turning point for the Jews in Persia. Now, what we do know, and we'll see this, Esther becomes distressed. Look at, look at verses 4 through 9. We'll read it. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. And then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. She doesn't know. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. And he also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa. And to show Esther, uh, to show to Esther and explain it to her, and he told them to urge her to go into the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Now, Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. So there's a communication between Esther, who's in the palace, and Mordecai was outside the king's gate. They're both within the citadel. Normally, Mordecai works at the king's gate and may have had more access to the palace, but because he's wearing sackcloth, he's not properly dressed. He can't enter the palace. He can't enter the king's gate, but he's right outside the gate, making a spectacle of himself publicly, which is very uncharacteristic of a man who always looked for opportunity to progress or to be promoted within the Persian government. But when you have a death sentence, none of that matters. Isn't it amazing when we really deal with the serious matters of life, how those other things just don't matter? Like your car breaks down, it's the biggest deal in the world, but then you find out a relative, God forbid, a relative is sick? Or you yourself have an illness? I mean, do you really care about your car? Does it really matter? You can buy a new car, but you can't buy a new kidney, you know what I mean? Maybe in some countries you can. But, you know, generally here, that's not how it works. So when we become ill and we deal with problems, it refines our thinking. Even when we become sick, and many, I mean, so many people right now, it's probably just the time of year, right? After the holidays, germs, right? I'm keeping my uh, healthy distance from everybody. I'm feeling fine, but I want to stay that way. I, I have uh, a show that I'm playing at this weekend, and I need to be able to sing, right? So I'm like, I can't get the sniffles, right? So if I'm a little cold and aloof tonight, if I didn't shake your hand, that's why. But isn't it amazing? We, we, we get a cold. I, a couple of weeks ago, I had a head cold. Not, not even that bad, right? And I, I'm, I'm sitting here laying on the couch, and I'm just thinking, you know, a couple of days, I'm going to forget about how I feel right now going to pass. Thank God. I'm not going to stay this way. I'll be okay. 
But in those moments, you appreciate your health. I can remember just thinking, I feel so weak and tired, right? Because I had this sinus headache, sinus infection. And I thought to myself, where's my strength, you know? But I know my strength will return, but where's my strength? And then when my strength returned, boy, do I appreciate it. You, you can take your health for granted, right? When you're feeling fine, but then you, even just an illness, even just a cold, a fever, and you suddenly realize, oh my goodness. I mean, I don't need any, I just need my health. I just need to feel good feel well. I need to be well. It's amazing how those times of trials, even those small times of trials, will remind us of the blessings of God. And I thank God for that. I can remember coming back from, I guess it was El Salvador one time, I I got a really bad bug. It only happened to me twice. In all the many trips I took, 15 or 16 times to the countries of Central America, and I only remember twice getting sick. One, One was for like four hours while we were there. The other was for two weeks after I got back you want to lose weight, it's a heck of a way to lose weight, let me tell you. Two weeks. I I looked awful. I felt awful. And I can remember thinking, will I ever eat again? You know? You know, two weeks is a long time to have a stomach bug, but, you know, I had caught something, something got in my system. But, you know, in the end, it actually helped me, because I guess my body rejuvenated after that experience. But I remember during those two weeks just thinking, oh my goodness, I don't need anything. I just need food. Now, most of us got up this morning, we breathed air, I assume, because you're all here. We probably drank some water or some coffee. We probably had breakfast and maybe lunch, possibly dinner. And we probably didn't think twice about those blessings. But let them be taken away in how we, how we value the simple blessings of God. So there is a purpose in difficulties and trials. And many times, it's just to refine our character so that we appreciate God's blessings. So that's, that's what I see here. As I look at the trials, they're going through very severe trials, but still, this is what's happening. So we learn that Esther was distressed. She sees Mordecai so troubled, she sends out one of her attendants. I wonder, what's going on? What's, what's going on with this guy? She sends him clothes so he can come in, right, to the uh, palace and she can speak with him. But he won't have any of it. He's, he's distressed. He's only interested in crying out to God. So Esther sent Hathek to go speak with him. And she finds out, because Mordecai explains his behavior, and gives him a copy of the edict. This is what's going on. You need to know we're all going to die very shortly, within 11 months. We're going to be put to death legally within the empire, within the kingdom of Persia. Told him everything that happened to him. I mean, he knew, that is, Mordecai knew, that he was at the center of this controversy. See, he had refused to bow to Haman, and that's what instigated the entire plot to destroy the Jews. His unwillingness to bow to Haman, and I'm not saying he should have, I'm just saying his unwillingness is what started the whole controversy. He feels, and rightfully so, personally responsible for the death sentence upon his entire people. This has profoundly impacted him. He's kind of a different person now. And he has that copy, he's prepared with it, he gives it to to Hathak to give to Esther. And then Mordecai told Hathak, this is what you need to do. Urge Esther to appeal to Xerxes on behalf of her people, the Jews. Now that's very interesting. Because those of you who have been a part of this study know the one thing that Mordecai explicitly told Esther to do is not to tell anyone that she was a Jew. You know, her real name is Hadassah. But she's going under the name Esther and, and she's conveniently left out uh, 
the, the truth that she's a Jew or that she's related to Mordecai, who's her cousin but raised her as a father, an adopted father. So now all of a sudden, you know, now that doesn't matter, does it? Because the political advantage isn't, isn't valuable anymore. What's important is life. And so he wants her to get involved and intercede on behalf of her people. Now, yes, he had forbidden her to let anyone know she was a Jew or that she was related to him, but that is all in the past. Now, this very worldly man who had connived in his own strength to find position and political advantage is only interested in one thing, seeking God and being delivered by God's hand. He urged her to reveal her nationality to Xerxes, beg him for mercy, and plead with him for her people. The only way she could do that was to be honest about her heritage. So he was, un- he was unwilling before to forfeit his political advantage. Oh, now he's more than willing to do so in order to save his people from annihilation. And so he rejects the comfort of the Persian culture for deliverance from the Persian law, which will inevitably put them to death. Well, here's how Esther responds initially. Look at verses 10 and 11 in chapter 4. Then she instructed him, that is, Hathak, to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he should be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the golden scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days passed, or have passed, since I was called to go to the king. In other words, I haven't seen him in a month. And I don't have the right to just go and demand an audience with the king, even though I'm the queen. And the law is that if I insist on that, it's looked at in a very negative way, And unless the king pardons me, I'm guilty of something, a crime, of breaking the law that will result in my being put to death. And that's very true because that's the law that they had. seems a little crazy, but that's the law that they had. You couldn't just approach the king. You needed an appointment. Now, think about it this way. If you decided you wanted to have a conversation with the president of the United States, and you just decided to walk up to the gate, and you insisted on going in there. Something tells me we might not see you for a while. And if you tried to scale the wall, we all know what happens when someone does that. I hope you like guard dogs and bullets because that's what happens. So, you know, it's not uncommon for a king or a president to have some protection. And, you know, you can't just walk up to the king. You would think that she could, but even she cannot. And so she initially refuses. She's telling Mordecai, I can't do it. It could cost me my life. So Esther sent Hathak back in the open square, told Mordecai, look, uh, uh, she's unwilling. She's unwilling to approach Xerxes without being summoned. Now, Persian law, as we know, condemned anyone that approached the king in the inner court uh, uninvited to death. But there was this exception. And the exception is if the king pardoned her by extending his golden scepter to spare her life. Now, some see in this, I mean, it's true, there is a a parallel here, but some see in this a symbol of Jesus Christ. And I'll explain why. And I think it's true. There is a symbol here that points to Jesus. First of all, God's law condemns all that approach him uninvited, condemns them to death. The wages of sin is death. It's the gift of God that brings eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So, To just approach God apart from Jesus Christ, apart from 
forgiveness, you have no right. You, you, you can't approach God and be accepted in God's presence apart from Jesus Christ. The only exception to approach God the Father is if God pardons you by extending his golden scepter. Now, we know from the scriptures that Jesus is called the scepter of Judah. He's the golden scepter of Judah. He's our only salvation from death. He's called the golden scepter or the scepter of Judah in Genesis 49. So that symbol of Jesus Christ is an apt symbol for sparing someone from death. So if we try to approach our heavenly king apart from Jesus Christ, we, we won't be accepted. But in Jesus Christ, we can approach the throne boldly for help in our time of need. That's what the scripture tells us in Hebrews. We can come before his throne of grace confidently because he'll in no way cast us out. Why? Because we are in Christ. But it's the golden scepter of Judah that makes that possible. The symbol's very much a symbol of Christ's forgiveness. Now, in the scriptures, gold represents deity. Deity. It represents deity. And the scepter represents power. And we know that God has made his forgiveness available through his son, Jesus Christ. By the way, we've mentioned this before. God's name is not mentioned in this book, but he is still our salvation from certain death. And so this symbol of the golden scepter really points us to the truth that we need Jesus Christ to stand before God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can trust in the letter of the law, but that'll only bring death. But if we trust in the golden scepter of salvation, that brings life. So a beautiful picture of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. But notice Esther hadn't been called to appear before the king for the last 30 days. So she might be thinking, you know, maybe he doesn't want to see me. And I really don't feel like testing this, you know, because if he doesn't extend that golden scepter, I'm done for. So Mordecai, again, this experience has changed him. And notice what he says in verses 12 through 14. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, I'm sure he was disappointed, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. That shows faith on the part of Mordecai. Essentially saying, if you're not the one that's used, someone else will be used. Then he goes on to say, but you and your father's family will perish. Think about it. You can be used by God or someone else will be used by God, but God will be faithful to his people. It takes faith to believe that, amen? It takes faith to believe that. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. For such a time as this. You see, that's the beauty of this entire account in God's word, that that's exactly what happened. Now, God wasn't in all of the, all of the things that led up to this. God, God wasn't in the edict. That, that was the devil working through Haman. And, and Esther being put in this beauty contest and becoming the, the queen in a pagan kingdom, I, I don't believe that any of that was God's will. But God can work through those things for his good. He works through our mistakes. He works through our failures. He works through our sin. He forgives our sin, but he works through those sinful things. He works through those decisions we make even against his will. And I think that's clear here. God is still working. And Mordecai now, through this experience, realizes, look, I trust God. God will work through you or through someone else. God will work. 
But think about it. He's thinking about it now. Could it be that the reason you're in the position you're in is because God wants to work through you? That's a great question to ask ourselves. It really is. And that's what Mordecai challenges her with. He sends a message back with that severe warning. Don't think as queen, he would say to her. Don't think as queen. You're going you're to be like the only Jew that escapes death. Because eventually the truth will come out and you'll be put to death too. Because the law has sentenced you to death. Her silence would not prevent the relief and deliverance of the Jews either. Because God is faithful. He was certain. You can see it in his response. He was certain that they would be delivered and that she and her family's, or her father's family would perish if they declined this opportunity to stand for the truth and to stand for what's right. So that's, a, that's quite a challenge. But you know, it's a challenge to us as well, really, when you think about it. Because he's suggesting she have may, may have been placed in her royal position to deliver the Jews for God's purpose. Where has God placed you? Where has God placed you? I'm certain that wherever you are, God has a purpose for working through your life. Oh, it may not be as grand as delivering an entire group of people from certain death, but I'm sure that God has a purpose in placing you in the job you're in, in the school you're in, in the family you're in, in the neighborhood you're in, in the church you're in, in the state you're in, in the country you're in, in the the place he has you. And if you just kind of go through life thinking, well, you know, I don't want to jeopardize. I'm pretty comfy. Things are good. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. Just realize, you know, God has placed you where you are for a reason. There's a purpose in who you are and where you're at. And you should always be asking that question. Have I been placed in a position like this for such a time as this? Is there a reason why he's given me the opportunity to share? Is there a reason he's given me the opportunity to be with these people or be in this family or to be at this job? Many people are very content to not jeopardize their job or their popularity or to speak out publicly because they do not want the blowback that comes when you preach the truth to people who don't want to hear it. Always ask yourself, have I been placed in the position I'm in, in the place I'm in, for such a time as this? We're living in very dark times, and there are very few Christians who are willing to stand for the truth and speak the truth. You know, I've noticed a lot of Christians, so-called, are willing to kind of like avoid being so confrontational. Many churches are unwilling or even condone sin in order not to invoke the wrath of the woke media or the crowd. And then every once in a while you have somebody who's not even a Christian who says the right thing. I was just reading a quote today by J.K. Rowling, who is very well known for the Harry Potter series. And, you know, some of the things she's saying I, I wholeheartedly agree with, but it amazes me that many Christians are unwilling to say what she'll, she's willing to say. Basically, she's making the point that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. You know, the basic biological fact that there are two genders seems to be controversial today. And here she is. She's not a member of a church. She's not a pastor. As far as I know, not even a believer in Jesus Christ. Maybe she is. I don't know. But I know something that she was willing to speak the truth. And boy, oh boy, do people have it in for her because she did. You know, it's funny. I think it was Mark Hamill, uh, you know, Luke Skywalker. Uh, he, he just was on the post. Stay off social media. Do yourself a favor. He was just on the post that she had, and now people are going after him. They say he's turned to the dark side. Because apparently he also believes that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. Imagine that. That we live in a day and an age 
where saying that is controversial. Saying that could get you fired, canceled, deplatformed, unfriended. Actually, it could bring legitimate, like, real persecution. People could show up at your house or your business because you believe the biological truth that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. Amazing, right? So you've been placed in a culture. You've been placed at a time in our nation's history. You, you've been placed in a blue state. You've been placed in a place where you can preach the truth, not controversially. And again, I suggest you don't do that in the public arena, not online. But you may be given an opportunity to speak to someone about the basic truths of Scripture, that God created man and woman, right? He created them in his own image, man and woman. And you may be able to share things like life is precious and not to be destroyed wantonly and without regard to the life of a child in the womb or the life of someone who's older. You may be able to share the basic truths of God's love and his word because you're in a place where I'm not. You're at a job that I don't work at. Have you been placed in the place you're in for such a time as this? I would venture a guess that the answer to that question is yes. Pray about it. Pray about how you may be a witness to the truth and be used by God in the place that he has you. Well, Esther receives this encouragement from her adopted father Mordecai, and to her credit, she realizes he's right. He's right. She was trying to save her own skin, but she realizes Maybe I have been placed in this very advantageous position, an influential place to be used by God. But she also realizes she's scared to death. She also realizes that she doesn't have the confidence to stand up and be used by God. So what does she do? Look, look with me in uh, verses uh, 15 through 17. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, that's the capital, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. I'm willing to break the law. And if I perish, I perish. Some of the bravest words written in the Bible. And it's from a woman in the court of a king. If I perish, I perish. It takes a lot to get to that point. But she's still scared. She, she knows she needs more than her own determination and will. So she asks Mordecai to round up all the Jews. Pray for us. Pray for me. So Mordecai went away in verse 17. Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. So Mordecai's in a better place because of this persecution. Because of the challenge and the persecution, Esther's in a better place. God refines us through fire. You you melt down and purify precious metals, and they become more precious when heat is applied. So whether you're creating steel for strength or gold or silver for value, there's always heat that is applied to the ore or the metal to purify it and make it more precious still. You're going through a refining process in this life. That is what's going on in your life. That's what God is doing through the fires of persecution, even suffering and trials. You're being refined. 
You're being purified. You're being made more like Jesus Christ. And you're being made stronger. But if you rely on your own strength and your own will and your own determination, you will surely fail. So what Esther does is very important. She sends her message back to Mordecai. And she says, I'm going to turn to God. We're going to turn to God together for deliverance and deliverance from Haman's plot to destroy us. So she instructs Mordecai, gather all the Jews in Susa and get them together and fast. Have them all fast. We'll all fast for three days. And now this was a three-day absolute fast. We'll talk a little bit about fasting this evening, but an absolute fast for God to give her the spiritual strength just to appear before the king. Yes, it's a fast that he would respond in the right way, but more so it's about fasting for the spiritual strength to stand before the king, willingly break the law, knowing that she could be put to death. That's going to take courage and strength, and she's asking for that strength from God through fasting. We'll talk more about that before we close this evening. An absolute fast. That is no food, no drink. Esther trusted God that Xerxes would pardon her by extending the golden scepter to spare her life, willing to break Persian law and appear before the king, King Xerxes, without being summoned, knowing she's risking her life and may even perish, but she's willing to perish if necessary. One of the things I want to talk about just briefly is commitment, because there's a lack of commitment even within the church. There's a lot of people that just do not really commit themselves to God or to his word or to serving God. It is in any wonder when many within the church, many church leaders, make it very easy for people to come and go to church without making any sacrifices or commitment. I mean, one of the things that the church has done over the last several decades is made it pretty easy for someone to come to church without really asking or even making any demands upon them. They don't preach the kind of messages that challenge people to obey the word. Uh, They don't, you know, one of the things, and this is, I appreciate the sentiment of making it convenient to go to church. I I understand what what people try to do when they say, well, you know, we'll have a service. We'll have one at 8. We'll have one at 9. We'll have one at 10. We'll have one at 1145 so that everybody can go to church exactly when they want. I understand the sentiment. But if we base church services on what's convenient, we're, we're sort of making it easy for people to just kind of just come to church and no real commitment required. Now, I'm not saying we have a nine o'clock service to show you guys if you're committed or not. I'm not suggesting that's when we have the opportunity to meet. But it's shown me something is over the years I've realized some people have actually said to me, oh, I can't, you know, nine o'clock, no, you know. And I think to myself, yeah, it's a little bit of a commitment. I don't really think it's being like put on a cross or anything, but you know, I think it shows that when it's not about convenience, when serving God is not about convenience and it's not a, about anything but really just truly being committed to God, you value and appreciate God differently. I've seen it overseas. I've seen it in Central America. I've seen it in Cuba. When being a Christian and attending a service might require you walking two hours to get there, you might appreciate that service a little bit more once you attend. Would you agree? I mean, if you had to walk two hours, and people do, to get somewhere, what does that say? So there's a balance. You know, you don't want to make it like we have a 5 o'clock service, 5 o'clock in the morning, and everybody proves their Christianity by being there. I'm not suggesting we get ridiculous, 
But at the same time, should we be sort of creating services and, you know, ordering and scheduling things at the church to be convenient? I mean, I think there's a balance. I think there's a time where you have to say, this shows your commitment. You know, when I was a kid, I grew up going to a church where on Easter, we went to church. On Christmas, we went to church. We even went to church on Christmas Eve. We went to church every Sunday. You know, I went to the Episcopal Church. It's a very different church today than when I grew up in it. But, you know, we'd go to church, and there was no question about whether we were going to church if Christmas happened to be a Sunday or whatever. I mean, we went to church on Christmas, even if it wasn't a Sunday. Like, if Christmas was a Thursday, we still went to church. All the family would come over. We're Italian, right? So all the family would come over. And then around 11, 11.30, we would get ready, and we would go to midnight mass. That's not convenient, is it? It's not convenient. It doesn't sound convenient because it wasn't. And we'd still, that was Christmas Eve, we'd still have to get up in the morning and go to church. There's a balance, but I want you to get out of the way of thinking that the more convenient church is, the better it is. I don't think that's true. I think the more the opportunity is there for you to prove and show your commitment to church, the better it is. We're not looking to make anyone suffer, but it shouldn't be about convenience. Look what convenience has done to us. I mean, we can't even boil an egg, you know, without a microwave. We have to have an, you know, everything has to be instant, instant. I, I actually lived before microwaves. Some of you did as well, right? Somehow we survived. Convenience can oftentimes dull our hearts to the commitment that's required to serve God. Well, anyway, back to our account here. Nothing convenient about fasting. There's nothing convenient about it at all. And here you see the total commitment doesn't consider death a significant deterrent. Think about some of the joints of Marine Corps or any of our armed forces. This is true. Total commitment doesn't consider death a significant deterrent. I would think that if you're really committed to defending our country, you've got to at least consider you may die doing that. But that doesn't stop people from doing it because they're totally committed. Now, of course, Jesus was committed. Would you agree? Amen. Totally committed to us, totally committed to you, to me. He didn't consider death a significant deterrent either or persecution. So I think there's a picture of commitment here that's very much lacking in the character of most Christians. And I think one of the things that will help us to develop that commitment and our character is fasting. Now listen, I'm not huge on this. This isn't like, you know, my big issue. But as I consider this, I realize as Mordecai leaves the open square to carry out Esther's instructions, this is all about fasting. Now, I, I want to read for you, and we'll talk a little bit about fasting as we close. Uh, I want to read for you what Jesus had to say about fasting, because that's the best place to start. In chapter 6 of the book of Matthew, in verse 16, Jesus simply said this, When you fast. Not if. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received the reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
So fasting is not an if, it's a when. But it's also to be done in a way that's between you and God. And I think part of the problem is when people fast and they make a big deal out of it, they kind of follow the fasting of the Pharisees, which Jesus didn't teach. When they don't fast at all, they discount the power of learning commitment through fasting. See, I think if you think that God responds to prayer because if you really scrunch your eyes and really press your hands together, God listens more, you probably have a five-year-old understanding of prayer. All right? It's not about that. If you're on your knees, God listens. If you're in a church, it has more power, right? Prayer doesn't work that way, and fasting doesn't work. Oh, I'm going to fast for five days. Five days, I'll get it done. I'm not just doing it for three. I'm doing it for five. You're missing the point. It's about total commitment to God. And nothing shows our commitment or teaches us commitment more than not eating or not drinking or giving something up. Sacrifice is what teaches our bodies and our spirits and our minds the truth of total commitment. And that's what fasting is all about. And I'm going to share a few things about fasting. You can just listen. Here's what we know about fasting. This is pretty much everything I know about fasting. The Pharisees fasted in order to impress earthly men. Jesus condemned the way that they fasted as hypocritical. Fasting was supposed to be a private denial of self in order to grow closer to God. And the Pharisees fasted twice a week, every Monday and every Thursday. These were also the days when the synagogue met. It was strategic so that people would see that they were fasting. This allowed them to display themselves before the assembled worshipers. Uh, They would change the expression on their faces to announce that they were fasting. They didn't wash or anoint themselves with oil. This is about bringing attention to themselves. They went barefoot. They sprinkled ashes on their heads. Everyone knew what they were doing. Jesus tells us that. The only reward that they would receive would be the attention that they sought. They got all that attention, but that's, that's, that's it. It didn't have any other value is what Jesus is saying. It didn't value them in any other way. Jesus taught them to fast in order to receive honor from their heavenly father. That is to grow closer to God. He encouraged them to fast as privately and discreetly as possible, and it's assumed that a truly righteous disciple of Christ will fast. Uh, There need not be a law where you fast every day or every Tuesday or every other day. It's about your heart for God. And I think we must try our very best to keep our fasting private. We really should. Personal grooming and hygiene should not be abandoned. Fasting should be an extremely personal matter. That's what Jesus tells us. Now, he tells them that their heavenly Father would reward them for fasting discreetly before the Lord. So the first thing he makes clear is it's not about others. It's about you and God. The Pharisaic practice of fasting didn't fulfill the righteousness of God. It was a waste of time. It was probably worse than a waste of time. It was very negative. But the scriptures teach us that fasting is a necessary spiritual discipline. What is fasting? Fasting is simply denying the flesh in order to feed the spirit. So the time and the effort and the expense that you put into a meal is replaced with spiritual exercise. That is, there are very big differences between fasting and dieting. Okay? They're entirely different practices with extremely different objectives. If you go to get a, a blood test, they might say, oh, you have to fast for 12 hours. No, no. You just need, it's different. That, that's a different kind of fast. It's not a spiritual fast. The time and effort usually afforded the flesh, the body, by eating, is replaced by spiritual exercise. 
things that you do, like attending church, worship, prayer, right? Study, reflection, meditation, self-examination. It's an opportunity for you to grow closer to God. Fasting also provides us with the opportunity to practice self-discipline and self-denial. Imagine that in our culture, saying no to yourself. I mean, it could be as simple as you're driving past a Starbucks and you say, you know what, Lord, instead of going into the Starbucks and getting myself a latte, I'm just going to read your word for 10 minutes. I know, huge sacrifice, right? It's like being in the underground church or something. There are little things we do where we make spiritual, physical sacrifices for spiritual purposes. And it can be as simple as something like that, but it's all about replacing those things that feed our flesh with things that feed our spirit. I heard somebody, I think it was John Corson, said, you know, what fasting is is like you have two dogs, you know, and you feed one dog and you deny the other. After about a week, which dog do you think will win the dog fight? The one you fed. Flesh, spirit. Feed your spirit, deny your flesh. It's a very biblical concept, and I think you know that, right? So let's talk about the different types of fasting. There's four basic types of fasting practiced within the Scripture, just within the Scripture. First is absolute fasting. It's what we see here in Esther chapter 4. It means no food, no drink, and it's harmful beyond three days. In fact, you probably, if you're thinking about doing this kind of fast, might want to even check with your doctor if you're going to do it longer than a day. But more than three days, your kidneys will begin to shut down. So you, because of the drink, right? You, you have to take liquids. So very, very careful. I'm not a doctor. You should speak to your doctor if you have any health conditions before you choose this type of fast, especially. Common fasting is no food. You drink, no problem. But you take water, but you, but you don't eat. Now, that can be harmful. Believe it or not, you can go about 40 days. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. But you can go about 40 days if you drink enough fluids without eating food before it becomes really detrimental to your body. Again, if you're going to go 40 days without eating food, you better be in really good health and you better know your body and speak to someone uh, who can help you figure out the best way to do that. I don't recommend that. Okay, I'm not recommending actually either of these two. I'm just saying that that's what we see in the Bible. Partial fasting. This is the kind of fasting that most people do. And by the way, you can do an absolute fast or a common fast for a short period of time, like less than a day or even a day, and it's not going to hurt you. You'll be fine. But not if you're going to run a marathon, right? Okay, if you're going to run a marathon, not a good time to fast, would you agree? Okay, you need to drink water, obviously. So uh, you need to use your brain. Imagine that. You need to use your brain. But partial fasting means abstaining from a specific food or drink, it's not harmful at all. So if you say, I'm not going to eat raisins, or I'm not going to drink coffee, or I'm not going to have brownies, all right? Most people will probably avoid broccoli or asparagus, but let's say that you choose, I'm not going to have my favorite food, and every time I think about my favorite food, or every time I would have eaten my favorite food, I'm going to do something spiritual instead, then in that case, you are truly fasting in a way we call partial fasting. This was the kind of fasting we did as kids during Lent, you know, I'm not having chocolate chip cookies, you know. I don't know that that's all that significant. I just know that that is a definition of partial fasting. It happens within the scriptures. And then there's supernatural fasting. And I really, truly recommend no one even attempt this. Uh, Moses and Jesus both fasted for 40 days. In fact, I think Moses fasted for 40, came off the mountain. And as far as I know, he didn't eat anything, went back up for another 40. How is that possible? Well, it's not possible. But with God, all things are possible. Jesus goes into the wilderness absolute fast for 40 days. 
He's tempted by Satan. How does that happen? Because he's Jesus and because God sustained him. Okay? So those are supernatural fasts. I really don't think anyone should even think about that. Okay? That has to be something that God not only commands you to do, but empowers you to do. So you've got absolute fasting, common fasting, partial fasting, and supernatural fasting. My personal advice, this isn't biblical, is common fasting, which is really easier to do than absolute fasting. Common fasting and for a time period less than 20, 24 hours or less. I think that that is a very basic, healthy way. You're basically not eating for a day, maybe two. It's not going to hurt you. You're going to be fine. You might even lose a few pounds. That's not why you do it, but I don't think it's going to be a problem. Now, Jesus did not practice or teach Pharisaic fasting, but he did fast for 40 days before he was tempted by the devil. Why do you think he did that? To be spiritually strengthened as a man, because he was God and man, to be spiritually strengthened to be the person, as a man, that God had called him to be. So there you go. If Jesus could do it, again, supernaturally for 40 days, but he was going up against Satan, I think this would be a good discipline for you and me, for us to implement in our lives. Fasting accompanied prayer, worship, and appointing elders in the early church, in the book of Acts. And Jesus taught that prayer and fasting even built the faith necessary to remove demons. When he said, some demons don't come out but by prayer and fasting. Prayer is crying out to God, but the fasting is conditioning our spirits so that we're not distracted in those very, very interesting times of spiritual warfare. Well, the religious practice of fasting has developed throughout history of mankind. See, in the early ages, now we're not talking about biblical fasting at this point, but in the early ages, men subsisted largely upon whatever was available. So many times they'd go without. And they superstitiously interpreted this as God's will, divine will. And it was pleasing to God if they skipped a meal. So this concept of not you know, eating uh, in an attempt to please God or the gods came about out of necessity. People sort of did that through superstition. False gods they believed were jealous of the pleasures of men, and that they would extend favor to those that abstained from food. That's a very different thing than biblical fasting. And this thinking underlies the fasting that's practiced within many pagan cultures today, because many pagan cultures do fast, many of them. Um, I don't know, I guess it's accurate to call Islam a pagan culture. It's not as pagan as maybe some other cultures that we're familiar with, but in either case, you know during Ramadan... Uh, and, you know, I have, I, let me just say this about Muslims. I, I've met some Muslims who are just wonderful people. I just want to be clear about this, that I have the highest respect for many of them as people and their commitment to God, even though they're not believing in the same God that we believe in. I'm just saying that. But one of the things that, that I, I've recognized is they do this during Ramadan, where as long as the sun is up, they don't eat or drink. You know, that shows commitment. You've got to admit that much, Right. Um, but it's not the same thing that we do, but it's more similar to what we do than the ancient like Greek cultures and pagan cultures. Uh, so there's, you know, fasting is a part of many cultures. And uh, the religious practice of fasting was largely abused by Israel throughout their history, as we've already talked about. I mean, the only time that fasting was required by the law was on the Day of Atonement, one day a year. The law only said that was the only day you needed to fast. And they went crazy with it. The Pharisees did. Fasting ultimately became a religious habit during hard times and trying circumstances. When experiencing misfortune or bereavement or when threatened by God's judgment 
or when guilty of falling into sin. And that seems to be the case here where they're they're crying out to God, but they're crying out to God in a time of need. Their religious, that is Israel's religious authorities, implemented fasts to avert national calamity and divine judgment. And after the exile, they implemented fasts to commemorate memorial days throughout the year. So all of this was religion. It wasn't God's word. The Pharisees instituted regular fasts on the second and fifth days of the week. And then there was a group of people called the Essenes, you might be familiar with, uh, and other sects of Judaism that worshiped the Lord primarily through fasting. So it got a little out of control. It really did. But listen, the church was just as guilty. The religious practice of fasting was largely abused by the church throughout its history. Let me give you a few examples. Church leaders instituted regular fasts on the fourth and the sixth days of the week. And Lenten fasts were implemented before Easter in the second century. So that wasn't something out of the Bible or even Jesus' teaching. Nocturnal fasts or vigils were implemented before high festivals. Bishops appointed extraordinary fasts and applied the money saved to charitable purposes. It seems like everything with bishops and popes and in general, the Catholic Church of the middle centuries, especially, but even today, had to do with money somehow, right? So here's the idea. Whatever you would have spent on the food that you didn't eat, give it to the poor. Interesting, all that money that was given to the poor built some rather large cathedrals in Europe, but I'll move on. Am I being critical? Well, I'm being honest. That's just an observation. In the 6th century, fasting was made obligatory by the Second Council of Orleans in 541 AD. Obligatory. It was never obligatory. That is, it wasn't required. It was optional. Anyone refusing to abstain was treated as an offender and subject to excommunication. And then, in the 8th century, fasting was regarded as praiseworthy. So, you know, in the 8th century, they said, well, it's, it's the thing you should do. Now, Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox churches continue obligatory fasting today. When I was growing up, my father was raised Roman Catholic, so half my family was Catholic. They wouldn't eat meat on Fridays. I think they threw that out the window now, but, but back then, that was like a big deal. I mean, sometimes, I grew up in an Italian neighborhood, sometimes if I went to the cafeteria and had a hamburger on a Friday, people would come up and be like, oh, I, mean, I remember that. But I was Episcopalian. We were allowed. Anyway, <laughs> most Protestant churches merely recommend fasting instead of requiring it, which is good. But listen, let me ask you a question as we close. Are we willing to deny our flesh? That's the basic question. Are we willing to deny our flesh in order to grow spiritually? And will we fast as the Lord leads? We're not going to start a campaign here where we fast together every Tuesday or it's going to be Lent soon, so everybody has to give up chocolate chip cookies. That, that, that's not the point. I think you know, well, you certainly know everything I know about fasting now. But you certainly understand there's an important aspect to this, and it's not about religious fasting. It's not about law. It's about Think of how you, as an individual, given your needs and general health, could implement this type of self-denial into your life to the benefit of your spirit. And pray about it. For me, I have a particular time every week that I, that I, uh, I fast. I'm not going to talk about it because that would like, defy Jesus' words here. But, but I do. I, I implement weekly fasting. To me, that is an important part of my spiritual growth and my character as a, as a Christian. I recommend the same. May the Lord lead you accordingly. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you. We know that you lead us in all things, and we pray that you would continue to lead us in this particular area 
according to your word and according to your will. Lord, as we seek you through prayer and fasting, it's with the purpose that we might grow closer to you, that we might become more like you, and that we might be strengthened in our spirits to follow you with total commitment. Lord, make us the people, the men and the women that you want us to be, by your will and according to your word we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.